Good afternoon, this is your captain speaking with just a little flight information. We're flying at an altitude of 37,000 feet and our airspeed is 400 miles an hour. A couple little facts here, I'm packing a Colt King Cobra, that's a 357 caliber firearm with a black rubber grip and a six inch barrel, capable of piercing body armor at a distance of up to 27 feet. And I can put a hole in human bone and flesh the size of the Grand Canyon, which, by the way, is coming up on the left hand side of the plane. So just sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the plane. No, not you, not you. Your organization's terrible. Should I tell you? Should I tell you? Oh, you Boy Scouts, but you know life, you know life. Hey, News Dive listeners, it's Sam Carliner, and if you're listening to this episode the day it aired, it is officially October. If you're a regular listener of the show, you know that we spent most of September covering the Assange trial, a story of the utmost importance as an extradition of the WikiLeaks founder to the United States would have devastating consequences for global press freedom. However, September was particularly full of important news. This past month began with reminders of the climate crisis that will define the years to come. While Californians experienced the largest wildfire in their state's history, so bad it made its way to Oregon, the Atlantic was hit by an unprecedented rate of tropical storms. The dehumanization of black and brown communities was also a prominent part of the news cycle. Breonna Taylor became another name in an ever-growing list of black Americans killed by police who has been denied justice. A grand jury in Louisville decided that only one of the cops who killed Taylor would face charges, and the charges were for shooting stray bullets into a neighboring apartment, not for killing a young woman in her own home. This month also came with another example of ICE's dehumanizing violence against immigrants when a whistleblower revealed that a Georgia detention center was forcing hysterectomies on immigrant women. This week's episode looks back on the alarming news that mainstream media has failed to shine a regular light on. To discuss some of these important topics that continue to be a regular theme in America, I'm joined by two community leaders both running campaigns to address topics such as racism, climate crisis, and immigrant rights. First, I'm joined by Fatima Iqbal Zubair, who is running for state assembly in California. If elected, she would be the first Muslim to represent California's state legislature and the first woman to represent her district. We spoke about how the most pressing issues impacting Americans are interconnected. So when fires happen, who is able to kind of get their property back to normal even better, right? Who is able to apply for these FEMA grants or get access to all these grants? Who has Wi-Fi access, you know? These are all of the issues that come up when you think about the systemic inequities. And that's why we see in situations like Katrina, right, for example, or in Hurricane Harvey and in these natural disasters that happen, it's the communities that frankly don't have access to Wi-Fi, that don't have the money. I mean, to, you know, rebuild, they don't have the wealth, sometimes don't even have a car to evacuate, right? These are things a lot of us take for for granted. 
Following that, I'm joined by Christine Olivo, who is running for Congress in Florida's 24th Congressional District as a non-party affiliate. We talked about how Americans need leaders who take a different approach to politics and champion progressive stances rather than sticking to the status quo. A lot of the times we vote for a color or we vote for that D-E-N, right? Mm -hmm. But we have to look at the what what the representative is bringing back to our community regardless of who they represent at the end of the day one of my very good friends says it's the same bird different wings sometimes you just get a politician that cares about uh, big corporate money and building relationships with other corporations they are not beholden to the people so uh i think honestly it's not just the Republicans that we need to be fighting against. There are some Democrats out there that are not delivering for their community, and we can't be afraid to say that. If you like this episode, please follow News Dive. You can listen to all of our reporting at anchor.fm slash newsdive or by searching and subscribing to News Dive on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else where you listen to podcasts. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Newsdive Radio. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Here is the first conversation with Fatima Iqbal Zubair. Hey, Newsdive listeners, I am joined by Fatima Iqbal Zubair, a community leader running for state assembly. And we're going to be talking about a few things that have been in the news a lot, but particularly in September. But before we get into those topics, would you like to introduce your campaign to our listeners and you know why you're running and what you stand for? Yeah, I would love to do that. Thank you. And thank you for having me here, Sam. I really... I love what you're doing with your show. Um, you know, um, yeah, my name is Fatima Iqbal Zubair. Um, I work as a public school teacher in Watts. Los Angeles has a lot of historical and cultural significance. Um, that is the community that really showed me a lot and, and showed me a lot of the issues that I talk about on my campaign related to systemic racism, related to Black lives, related to the, you know, vast inequities that exist and everything from environmental issues to educational issues to immigrate, immigration issues. So I, I'm essentially running for state assembly because a lot of people, you know, don't know this, but the state legislature has a lot of power over uh, laws in our state. And frankly, I was, I ended up working for my uh, opponent and was pretty dissatisfied as a, as a constituent, but also on behalf of my students, you know, we were, you know, just really uh, disgusted at some of his votes and the way he was not representing us and in fact perpetuating, you know, uh, some of the issues that Watts has lived with, that my district has lived with. And uh, so my district is uh, mainly South LA. It includes Watts, uh, where I worked, uh, Carson, where I live. Um, it includes Compton, uh, Wilmington, Long Beach. Predominantly, it includes um, an area, you know, historically known as South Central LA in California and a little bit of, uh, you know, towards kind of like the Long Beach Port area as well. And one thing I think is really interesting about your campaign is mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot of progressive candidates running for office, going for, you know, some of the bigger offices, Senate, uh, Congress. Can you talk about some of the, the benefits of running uh, on a more community level? Yes, I think local politics has doesn't get the press, right, in the popular media that national politics gets. And I think that, frankly, though, I think all politics should be local. I mean, even if someone's running for Congress, 
right? We think of this as a separate entity, but the best way to engage with the issues that are even talked about on a national level is at, at the community level. I think someone like Rashida Talib does a good job of showing this. I mean, you always see her talking about her community and invested in community. That's something she always lives by and says. And I think, you know, whether you're in Congress, whether you're running for city council, school board, honestly, Sam, the best politics is always local. Of course, some of these offices are more, you know, literally local, but I feel like if you are running for national office, it is your responsibility to really uh, listen to uh, the voices of those closest to the pain, the voices of those in the communities you're representing. And, you know, one thing I forgot to mention as well is that my race is also historic in the sense that there are some firsts, you know, I would be the first Muslim ever elected in a state that actually has the most Muslims. So the first Muslim elected to the state legislature, the first South Asian woman elected ever to the California state legislature. I would also be the first woman to ever represent my district and the first immigrant to ever represent my district. So I wanted to mention that as well. Um, it's important to have, you know, diversity in politics and um, ensure that we have a government that looks like all of us. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm glad you mentioned the, you know, discussions of speaking for your community, because that's what we try to do on this show. I mean, we've been seeing a lot of the issues happening at a national level, but I really wanted to have someone from California talk about the fires, because we see the pictures here on the East Coast. But I'm hoping you can talk about what it's like to actually live in a state that certainly recently, but I think, you know, annually is, is sets records for um, having worse and worse fires every year, it seems. Yes. Um, and yeah, it is such an important topic. Thanks for uh, you know bringing this up. Um, you're right. It is. Uh, what is it like to live in a state like that? I mean, it's disheartening because your state, of course, you care about your community. You care about your state. I mean, as living here, you want uh, to have a state that's best you know, for, my, for your own family um, and for your neighbors. And it is disheartening because, you know, we've seen the fires getting worse and worse year after year. Um, and we're seeing them, you know, in Northern California, but frankly, if you look at the hotspots, they're happening all over California and they've been going on for days. And it's quite scary because there are a lot of people that are having to be evacuated. There are a lot of, there's a lot of property that's been destroyed. And not just that, there's a, our air quality is getting much worse. I mean, I think something I experienced is, you know, I, um, thankfully my home isn't, near the fires but you know i remember uh, it was it was a couple of weeks ago that my our skies you know even far away from the fires looked almost like armageddon i mean they were you know i'm not trying to cause any hysteria here but it really looked red and uh it was it was it, you know literally you could see how bad the air quality was and i think that kind of spoke to me personally that even though i'm i'm you know miles away from the nearest fire you know tens of miles away um i could still visually look outside and Look, look how bad the air quality is really affected by these fires. And I know in the past, California has had a terrible drought. You know, you have earthquakes and there's a lot of, it's a state with a lot of environmental problems. Mm. Can you talk about some of the ways that this is impacting some of the more vulnerable communities? Yes, of course. I mean, you know, my district, let me start with that. I always, you know, when I was a teacher in Watts, I always made it a point to talk about my students because you know, communities that are low income don't always get the media attention, um, you know, they need or they deserve. And I'm um, wanted to share that. So, you know, my district in itself has uh, a quarter of California's refineries. Um, we have 80 assembly districts. My district has a quarter of the refineries, the largest refinery on the West Coast, uh, the highest amount of drilling in all of LA County, you know, which is one of the biggest counties. And, you know, my district, I forgot to mention this, uh, but it's very important, is 90% people of color. 
And so I, I'm starting with this because this is a picture of you know communities across California where we're seeing uh, dueling happening, uh, where we're seeing uh, COVID cases, frankly, being worse. Um, it's near Black and Brown communities, near you know um, Asian communities. And you know how is it how is it making it worse? You know a lot of people look at California as this uh, progressive beacon, right? But frankly, you know, living here with the amount of wealth we have, with the ability we have to really lead on climate, we are failing our state and failing our most vulnerable communities. You know, let me start with earthquakes. I mean, we have increased fracking drastically even during COVID. Um, you know, uh, our governor has approved a lot of fracking permits. This is not right. I mean, fracking does contribute to making earthquakes uh, more likely to happen and worse. Um, not just that, I mean, it's unhealthy for our drinking water, it's unhealthy, it creates toxicity in our soil. And, you know, I know our governor recently, um, you know, talked about electric cars, but frankly, uh, the issue of climate has to be multifaceted and has to be addressed that way, or honestly, these singular policies are meaningless. You know, the impact has to be, has to be so great. So that means we need to be addressing this from really every angle and not leaving anything out. And so fracking is one thing. Um, the other issue that we have in California is neighborhood drilling. Um, in my district, particularly, um, there's drilling happening near feet away from homes, um, you know, next to where babies and, and children are. Um, and we have, I mean, the facts show we have the highest rates of asthma and cancer um, near to where this drilling has been happening. And so, yes, it's it's made our air quality worse. It's made our health worse, and it's affected communities of color. I mean, in terms of you know relating it to the fires, we have seen our fires getting worse and worse year after year, decade after decade. You know, I want to point out, Sam, that, you know, because I'm all, I'm, I was a science teacher, you know, so I'm all about facts um, that, you know, and I was also biology major. Fires in a forest are a natural part, right, of regeneration. They need to happen. Um, so the issue isn't that we can't have any fires. In fact, there needs to be some fires happening for regeneration of our forest. It's actually healthy. Excuse me. The issue is that they are getting larger and they're getting more destructive. And that is due to climate change because of the, the air getting drier and our temperatures getting warmer, right? Making the conditions uh, more likely um, for, for fires to happen. And, and you mentioned the drought. You're absolutely right. So as, as well as the climate's getting drier, right? And the, and the, and the temperature's getting warmer, we are, are getting less and less rain in the state, which is naturally also um, not good um, in terms of reducing uh, the spread of fire. So, you know, all these things are interrelated. One thing that I really appreciate you mentioning is how this is a matter of climate change. I know I mentioned that too, but I think I've been, while we've been seeing here significant coverage of the fires, it hasn't been really connected to the larger issue. Mm -hmm. A journalist I really like, Alan McLeod, wrote about this, how uh, many news outlets even uh, have not even been using the term climate change in their coverage of the fires. And I think this is something that we've seen uh, in politics a lot. Can you talk about how, well, of course, this is a thing that is very strongly impacting your community, but how it does apply to a larger problem that the whole country should expect to be seeing? Yeah, I can. Um, you know, so the thing with this is, right, I'm, and, and I'm going to go even deeper um, because it's climate change, but it's also, you know, perpetuating, uh, it's also showing how communities of color are affected. And this is how, right? There's a couple of issues. Um, and some are directly connected, connected, but some are in the ways we systemically, you know, just address things in our society. You know, one thing I want to bring up first is that we have, California has been using prison labor since World War II. Um, and this is not talked about enough. And it's, in my, in my view, you know, completely unethical um, because it's, it's tantamount to kind of slave labor. They're paid 
you know, a dollar or you know, two dollars a day or something like that. And uh, you know, while it's counted as a volunteer program, we know with the, how the prison population is, is treated, how well, you know, is it really volunteerism or you know, um, you know, is there some element of like you know them being kind of feeling like they have to do it, right? But um, that's something that I, I think that folks should talk about it more is that you know we're using prison labor for this, and this is another way we're misleading our, our prison population. Yeah. So one other way this should be addressed is that, you know, generally we do have sometimes, you know, we have wealthy communities living near these forests, right? And there are times when these any natural disasters happen, right? We can, we have actually different communities. So it's not that we have just low income communities, you know, living near these fires, right? There's actually both, but here's the issue. The issue is that in the recovery process, right? So when fires happen, who is able to kind of get their property, you know, back to normal even better, right? Who is able to apply for these FEMA grants or get access to all these grants? Who has Wi-Fi access, you know? These are all of the issues that come up when you think about the systemic inequities. And that's why we see in situations like Katrina, right, for example, or in Hurricane Harvey and in this natural disaster that happened, it's the communities that frankly don't have access to Wi-Fi, that don't have the money. I mean, to you know, rebuild, they don't have the wealth, don't, sometimes don't even have a car to evacuate, right? These are things a lot of us take for, for granted, but they're actually privileges. And so this is the way we see these inequities now tie in with climate change. Um, I wanna particularly point out that, you know, um, the Native American community is really hard hit because they were forced to settle in areas in, that are in fire prone areas. And so, you know, when you look at a Native American family versus a privileged, you know, white family, right, who's going to be able to evacuate, who's going to be able to actually rebuild and get their home back. And it's most likely going to be the more privileged family. And so uh, these are issues we need to think about and be prepared for. And I think, Sam, what we've seen is that, you know, we have governments, local governments that are maybe good at reactive policies, right? At, oh, let's evacuate, let's do this, let's do that. But then what happens is that in these reactive policies, these communities of color, these low-income communities are being left behind, right? Because in these reactive policies, we aren't addressing the systemic inequities that really cannot be brought about through a reactive policy that really needs to be brought about by real change in policy that we plan for. And so um, that's something that we need to really look at. I am glad that you bring up, of course, the topic of racism, because I think that's one thing that We've been hearing a lot more about the pandemic certainly revealed systemic racism in the healthcare industry. And I wouldn't say fortunately, because, uh, you know, a lot of people died for it to come up, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, but we, we are seeing finally a resurgence of discussion about police brutality and uh, disproportionate police killings of black and brown communities. A while back on the show, we talked to an activist who who had faced aggression from the LAPD, and I would love to get an update on uh, how California uh, has been dealing with these issues of racism, either through mass incarceration or through more direct aggression uh, against Black Americans. Thanks for asking that important question. I mean, in my campaign, um, I mean, I could get a lot of activists as well. We always talk about how these issues are interrelated, right? Whether it's the fires, like you mentioned, or COVID or police brutality. Um, we always see a certain class of people and a certain race of people being impacted the most. And it's not by accident. Um, our system is actually working just like it was designed to work, which is why we need to, you know, reinvent it and uh, redesign it. Yeah, so, you know, I, I uh, want to point out that in my district itself, which is largely black and brown, um, Latino and black population, 
you know, Andres Gardado was shot 10 minutes from my home. You know, Dijon Kizi uh, was shot, you know, a block outside of my district, uh, but in South LA. And frankly, to tell you the truth, Sam, we are not doing enough. We haven't done enough to address this issue policy-wise um, at all. The city council in LA cut their budget, but barely. I want to address as a teacher as well, the issues we have with school police, Compton. The school police have access to semi-automatic assault rifles in the school. I've heard so many unfortunate stories of students who, who you know, I mean, students that are doing well academically, you know, feeling threatened. Um, but regardless, it does, that, that, that's, that's, un, that's unrelated to that, the fact that a student regardless of what type of student they are, should feel safe at school and not threatened. Where I taught in Watts, my students were randomly searched. So we have this system, the school to prison pipeline that's being perpetuated in LA. LA in itself has very segregated schools and that's also not by accident. Um, but so in my mind, we have to honestly abolish school police as a state. We haven't done that. And in terms of addressing, you know, uh, policing issues and public safety. I'm sure you see it there as well, but you see what's happening to the protesters. I mean, I was at a protest in Compton, uh, which was a peaceful protest. And, uh, you know, right after I left the sheriff, uh, the sheriff's uh, police officers there, uh, you know, spirit tear gas um, into the crowd. And we see that happening in protests. And, um, you know, I want to also bring up, because this isn't talked about enough as well um, on the media, um, the fact that there are, there's a game, you know, kind of quote unquote division within the sheriff's department. This kind of neo-Nazi group of police officers that have tattoos, uh, certain identifiable tattoo that pride themselves on brutalizing our black and brown children. This is a disgrace. This, I mean, it brings tears to my eyes. Just think about it. As I say it again, I've, I've shared this before with other people and other you know, media uh, things, but it, it really disheartens me. We aren't addressing the root of the issue here. And, um, and I think that is a huge problem. You know, and I think, Sam, the reason we aren't is very clear is it's because of the pay-to-play to, pay to system, right? This exists in politics when we talk about, you know, why oil refineries aren't held accountable, why we don't have aggressive action on climate change. But it also applies to, you know, really our police and public safety and, and how we're addressing that to really systemically make sure that we are, you know, making our communities seem safe, seem safe and not having police that are threatening our communities. You know, we have a DA right now in LA County that, you know, isn't trying cases, uh, you know, in case of police brutality. And her name's Jackie Lacey and, and she's up for election. So she should be voted out. We had a bill in the state legislature that would have ended qualified immunity, would have led to a process to make it easier to decertify police officers. This was a good bill. A lot of states have a bill like this uh, because, uh, as you know, um, a lot of times what happens is that these police shootings are not investigated, are not don't have the appropriate investigation that's given, for example, to an, any murder that would happen. And it's this biased system. And a lot of it has to do with the power of the police unions and just honestly, frankly, the racist systems we have in our country about, you know, how, how we look at policing and the function of policing and how policing started, you know. But um, it was actually my opponent and the Speaker of the House. And Sam, I want to bring this up. It's not just a Republican issue. When we're talking about, you know, defunding the police and looking at a decarceration uh, sort of sorts of budget at the state level, at the city level as well, um, this is not a Republican, this is not like all Democrats want this. What I want to bring up is that this is an issue that we have to continue building a movement around because frankly, Democrats don't go far enough on this. As a party, I mean, we have a super legislature, super majority, excuse me, up at the state legislature and we weren't able to pass this qualified immunity bill. We weren't able to pass a process to make it easier to decertify police officers. 
And this is this is this is a disgrace. Uh, this is an absolute disgrace. Instead, we're passing bills like my opponent uh, is so proud of, but he passed a bill to ban chokeholds. Frankly, this has been banned in major police departments, like in Chicago and in LAPD, and it's actually not led to any reduce in brutality. We can't have these false false reforms that are not doing anything to address the systemic issues, right? Because then we're only doing this to kind of look good as a state or look good as a party. We're not really addressing the root of the problem. And so, you know, to answer your question, to summarize, you know, what I've just talked about, we're not doing near enough to really address these issues because we still see, you know, black boys dying at the same rate, you know, we, and we see still in not the evidence not being released. We see these police officers not being investigated. Look at what happened in the case of Breonna Taylor right? The police officer wasn't charged. I mean, this is unjust. And sadly, the system is working exactly like it is designed, which is why we have to, you know, frankly, look at how we can really disrupt the system and create a system that, that values our dignity and humanity. There's a lot that I, I want to dig deeper into there, but I want to backtrack a little bit because you mentioned mm -hmm. the school to prison pipeline, which I think is such an important thing to talk about right now. And I'm sure you have witnessed it as a teacher. So for our listeners who may not know what that is, can you uh, elaborate a little bit? Yeah, of course. I, I mean, so anytime you want me to talk more about education, it's something I, as a teacher, it's, it's so important to me. Yeah, so the school to prison pipeline is, is, a, is, is kind of like a phenomenon, an unfortunate phenomenon, where we see our Black and our Latino you know, children funneled into the prison system. And, and the way this happens starts by one thing I mentioned, which is, you know, yes, having direct police on campus, you know, having our students charged for things like truancy or things uh, that they shouldn't be charged for, right, and taken to jail, which could be dealt with in a more restorative justice manner. Um, and frankly, this type of policing happens a lot in low-income Black and Brown communities. Surprise, surprise, right? So that's one aspect, Sam. But another aspect of the school to prison pipeline is what I witnessed as a teacher is that the way we really enable a community to thrive, right? I mean, I, I think I'll start with a simple, a simple story, which was so powerful and imprinted in my mind. I remember the exact moment a student said this to me. You know, I started a robotics team um, in my school, you know, mm. um, and the funding was just private funded because obviously, you know, that's another issue. There's not enough funding for these after school programs. As I was driving one of my students home, you know, he had some family, you know, um, you know, his extended family that was in a gang or, you know, involved in gang activity. And I, as a mentor, I, I told him, you know, you know, you have to make sure, you know, you graduate um, and you, you fulfill what you want to fulfill in your life. He's a very talented coder, you know, he's very uh, talented uh, future engineer. Um, and he said, you know, Ms. Zubair, why would I ever do that? I have robotics, right? And so that to me exemplifies another part of the school to prison pipeline, which is that our kids in these communities aren't given the opportunities to thrive. I firsthand saw how intelligent my kids were. I would tell them every day. Not that I went in thinking any less, but I think being a teacher there, it made me so angry to see my students trying so hard, working so hard, studying so hard, all while working for their families. And then the system saying, no, college is gonna be this expensive. No, we can't have this after school program. No, we're gonna cut arts. You know, that broke my heart. And to me, that's a big part of the school to prison pipeline because you are not al allowing our children in these communities to achieve their potential. When you don't have a pathway for them to achieve a potential, you are limiting the pathways they have. You're limiting the fields they can go into. You're limiting the ways they can make money. You are giving them no way out, essentially. 
And that's why I created my robotics program. But that's why, you know, a big part of my fight is making sure that we have equitable schools. We have schools that are fully resourced. We have schools where our teachers in these low-income communities are paid well so that we have the best teachers there, you know, not subs that are going in and out. And so, you know, essentially that is what the school to prison pipeline is. It is enabling a community to thrive, right? And putting those things in place in the schools, in the community, and removing those things that are essentially funneling kids to prison, like policing and like having, you know, schools that aren't high quality. Yeah. And another thing I want to talk about that you mentioned is how these issues are caused by bipartisan either participation in maintaining this, these systems or, or, or simply weakness to get rid of these systems. I mean, of course, we've seen with Donald Trump, the always tweeting law and order, very white nationalist, that I think these issues have gotten to a boiling point, but it doesn't help that the opposition to him is, of course, the writer of the crime bill. So can you talk a bit about how progressive leaders can try to go about resolving these issues? Because that's, yes. I think, being debated right now. Yes. To me, I also want to say the word progressive is, is always, politician kind of owns that word, right? We hear a lot of politicians saying that they are progressive. So I just want to first start with like what that word, you know, truly should be and when you should actually use that word um, to define yourself, right? So to me, being really progressive in these issues, including, you know, what you're asking me about is meaning that you are listening to the community voices, listening to organizations on the ground, like Black Lives Matter, like Movement for Black Lives, like Communities for Better Environment in my district in Wilmington. That's what being a true progressive means. So, you know, I, I would like all politicians to stop using that word and throwing it around. Not that I think they'll listen to me, but, you know, they really shouldn't because um, that's what being a true progressive means. And um, it is a word that shouldn't be taken li used lightly. You know, so why why this is happening, right? And I alluded a, a little to this earlier, but it's, you know, when we look at, Sam, the laws that are made or even introduced in Congress by both parties, right? Um, whether it's in our local offices or state offices or our, our congressional offices, Congress, federal offices rather, and Congress, um, we actually see like when they, you know, uh, when you look at it and do these studies and you talk to economists, um, they're actually not laws that are supported by the majority of the American people. There are laws that are written by ALEC, there are laws that are written by the special interests, there are laws that are written by big business. And, and, and the evidence of this is we've seen since the 70s are this big business influence really boom. If we think about things like Medicare and Social Security, a lot of these were bipartisan measures that were passed, you know, decades ago, right? What angers me so much is that we need to flip the Senate, yes, and, and a lot of Democrats talk about that, and I want that too, but that's not even touching the surface of how we can really address issues in our communities, right? Flipping the Senate is, a, is, is one thing that's important, but even if you flip the Senate to pass laws that are really going to you know reduce homelessness that are really going to decrease income inequality means that we need to honestly simply put remove this dark money from politics i mean it's literally related to the influence of what laws are written it's related to it's related to what types of policies are passed and and honestly it's a threat to our democracy 
you know and so one thing is that we absolutely need to overturn citizens united it's unfortunate that ruth bader you know died um passed away but that's something that needs to happen we saw a lot change after that for democrats and republicans by the way you know dark money's put into both elections super PACs are put into both sides on the state level what we can do though is we to, to kind of address this issue to make sure policy is really addressing people and and we're doing things like the de- decarceration budget like starting to defund the police and divest funds into services like schools and you know, healthcare and the environment and things like that, is we need to really make sure that, you know, it's not just me getting elected that's going to get these this done, right? I want to create a government where more working class people can get elected. I really think that when we're electing people closest to the pain, right, people like my students, um, you know, who are brilliant and who are first generation college students, but who might not have the resources to run and win, we give them the means to do so. When you have people like that up in these houses that have experienced you know, these things, the, this is when the urgency will be felt. This is when we'll actually create policies that can make our state and make, you know, on a federal and make our country what we want it to be. So, you know, one issue is we need to really provide public financing of elections everywhere. I, that's something I want to do at the state level. I also believe in um, a different type of uh, voting, uh, you know, system or election system rather. So I, I believe in ranked choice voting or some form of proportional representation that'll make sure, you know, our, our independent voices are heard. Most of, much of our country's independent. California went to Bernie Sanders um, and a lot of you know, Bernie supporters right now don't relate to both parties. And so that's an issue. Um, if we are really about people, we need to make sure that their voices are heard. Um, I also believe though, it's about expanding voting access. Right now, part of the reason we have some of these politicians, Democrats and Republicans that aren't doing the bidding of the people, aren't really you know, talking about systemic changes in policing is because of you know a lot of the voter suppression that happens across the nation. You know, I believe in allowing people in prisons to vote. I believe in allowing in local elections undocumented uh, immigrants to vote. I believe in allowing 16-year-olds to vote in school board elections. I believe in making voting a holiday. I mean, these are things that should have happened and should happen. But you know, again, our system is working like it's supposed to. You know, it it, it is made to kind of suppress uh, those that are not in the right. Um, privilege, right, to be able to access the demo- our democracy. And it really shouldn't be that way. In a true democracy, we should have expanded access and um, uh, so that people really truly feel they're being represented and the laws, you know, that are being passed are representative of what they want and what their community wants. I think very much uh, to your point on undocumented immigrants being able to vote, I think that's really important right now because well, one, Trump is using that as a as a talking point to just delegitimize the election. Mm-hmm. But then also we've been seeing under him horrific treatment uh, of immigrants to the point that I personally would say it's very definitely concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Recently, we got news that there have been forced surgeries so that immigrants cannot have children. And in July, this didn't get anywhere near the attention it deserved. But in July, there was a report from The Guardian that ICE was literally gassing Cuban immigrants in one of the facilities. And this is, of course, a problem that Democrats have not treated as as the dire human rights violation that it is and have built infrastructure for under the Obama administration. Um, Can you talk about just where America is in immigration and what we need to be doing to uh, end this, uh, end this just dehumanization. Thanks for bringing that up. I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, this is honestly 
Like it's beyond, it's, it's, it's a, I feel like a bipartisan issue that we're not addressing immigration and, or treating immigrants in this humane way. What needs to happen? You know, I mean, federally, there, there are things that we need to create. We need to create like, you know, a pathway to citizenship that this has been even talked about by Democrats for so long and it hasn't happened. And it's, I just want to point out that we're a country of immigrants and that especially in California and my state, um, we have so many immigrants that really benefit like, and are, contribute to our economy. And our economy, which is the fifth largest in the world, wouldn't be able to run without our immigrant population. And these are undocumented immigrants too, you know, on the front lines and contributing to our workforce, bringing food to our grocery stores. I mean, and we're, we're treating them like trash, honestly. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how else to put it, but at a state level, you know, at a state level, there's a lot we can do. So yes, our federal government needs to act and act fast. Um, and you know, on a on a state level, though, what we can do is we can provide you representation, right? That's something that we don't provide uh, for those that are risk of being a vic- uh, not evicted, sorry, the risk of being um, deported. Uh, we don't provide them with representation. And and in most cases, when we have immigrants that don't have representation, you know, their case doesn't go well and they're deported. And um, so that's one thing we can do as a state level. Um, you know, that's why I kind of talked about expanding voting rights, at least at, to, at a local level to undocumented immigrants. Um, that's something that'll give them some level of power. Um, there, there's also ways we need to expand healthcare um, and expand our medical here in California to make sure, you know, everyone really has full access and, and more, even more mental health access. Um, and, you know, even in California, when we had relief, you know, our undocumented immigrants were kind of left behind. And, you know, afterwards, we had our state legislature kind of bring up, oh, yes, and we're going to do this for undocumented immigrants. But even then, it wasn't enough. In my mind, when we come up with any law um, on a state level, when we come up with any law on this local level, our undocumented brothers and sisters need to be in the law, right? They need to be in the policy, in the relief. They are not an afterthought. They are the backbone of our economy. Our immigrants are the backbone of our economy. And so they need to be treated as such. We need to give them the respect and the dignity that they honestly have earned, um, you know, and yes, it's, I mean, it's a, you know, it's, 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 this is such a huge issue that I feel like the Democrats have been at fault for too, because um, it was Clinton that created this, you know, some of these immigration policies, right, that led to a lot of these deportations. Um, and then, you know, Obama was even known as a deporter in chief, right? And so, um, while what Trump is doing, and you know, I'm not trying to uh, say that what he's doing is the same, it's of course, you know, so much worse um, in the inhumane treatment and the separation of families. We have to really not be okay though with, oh, well, let's just take that away and then it's fine. We need to really do more is what I'm saying for immigrants, right? We need to, to respect them, um, understand that they contribute to our economy, um, understand that we need to just as a country live up to our morals of being moral and humane, um, you know, so. Well, Fatima, I really appreciate you taking the time to discuss these topics and running to actually address them. Is there anything else you would like our listeners to know and where can they follow your campaign and follow the the work that you're doing? Yeah, thank you, Sam, for having me. I really enjoyed uh, you asking these questions and addressing a lot of issues that aren't always addressed. So thank you for this great discussion. Um, yes, so my website is, um, you know, FatimaForAssembly.com. So that's, you know, F-A-T-I-M-A-F-O-R-Assembly.com. Um, if anyone goes there, you know, you could find information of how to donate, how to volunteer, 
Um, you know, I didn't point this out yet, but we're running against the second biggest acceptor of corporate money in the entire state legislature, a former cop, in fact. Um, and uh, so, you know, he has raised over a million um, from corporations and frankly, 25,000 just from casinos. I mean, the past, uh, you know, two weeks, it's ridiculous. And so um, if you do can chip in um, uh, to help us win, if you can volunteer, phone bank, you know, virtually to help us win, um, all those opportunities to do that are on our website will be greatly appreciated you know, to get really get justice for our state. All right, well, Fatima Iqbal Subair, thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. That was an interview with Fatima Iqbal Zubair, and now an interview with Christine Olivo. I am joined by Christine Olivo, who is running to represent Florida's 24th congressional district as a non-party affiliate on a progressive platform. Christine, thank you for being on Newsdive. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, of course. I wanted to have a chance to talk about quite a few different events and topics we saw in the news. And a lot of them are, I think, Florida is very representative state of. I think for starters, I know that you've been one of the worst hit states by the pandemic. And I'd like to start with an update on how is Florida being impacted by that now? Well, sadly, we have poor leadership. And what is happening with Florida now could have been prevented. Yes, the numbers are going down, but they're about to go up because instead of preparing to reopen safely, we are just rushing to reopen at any cost. And unfortunately, just my prediction, we are going to be right back in the same position we were in just a few weeks. Yeah, no, I remember just being dazzled by uh, as cases were rising, uh, the governor reopening Disney World. So I wouldn't be surprised. You Uh, know, it's really interesting. One of my staffers decided, you know, hey, before we go into phase three, let me just go to Disney World since it's empty now. And she went literally the next day. They said, oh, we're in phase three. And it was packed, almost as if nothing had ever happened from one day to the next. And you mentioned the poor leadership. I believe you're running against a Democrat. And I know that uh, in the past, we saw Jen Perlman running against a Democrat in Florida. And I think that's a very important topic that's being brought up that is as harmful as the Republican Party has been to Americans. We're also seeing a failure of Democrats to really tackle these issues in a way that helps the average person. Can you talk about your your view on that and the type of leadership we do need to see to resolve a lot of the issues impacting people? Well, a study just came out naming 30 of the poorest represented districts in the United States. The district that I'm running in was named as, as 30. And 25 of the 30 are ran by Democratic representatives. That means five, (laughs) only five out of the 30 are ran by Republican representatives. I say that to say a lot of the times we vote for a color or we vote for that DEM, right? Mm -hmm. But we have to look at the, what, what the representative is bringing back to our community, regardless of who they represent. At the end of the day, one of my very good friends says it's the same bird, different wings. Sometimes 
You just get a politician that cares about uh, big corporate money and building relationships with other corporations. They are not beholden to the people. So uh, I think, honestly, it's not just the Republicans that we need to be fighting against. There are some Democrats out there that are not delivering for their community. And we can't be afraid to say that. And as we were talking about before I started recording, we saw at the debate, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of progressive stances being shut out. I mean, we saw Joe Biden, Donald Trump insisting that Joe Biden is going to support the Green New Deal, to which... Uh, is a very popular policy. And of course, Biden's response is, no, I don't support it. We also saw in a moment where we're seeing a lot of growing support for the Black Lives Matter movement, Biden doubling down on making excuses for a lot of the police violence we've been seeing. Can you talk about some of what you would have liked to see at the debate and what you might have said had you been a candidate on that stage? I do not feel that, you know, Biden is out of nowhere going to just jump on the progressive chain and I mean, on the progressive train and just rally for us. But at least say that you're willing to consider it. He shut down Medicare for all. He shut down Green New Deal. He shut down defund the police, which defunding the police is not just about taking money away from the police, it's about putting money into our communities. These are things that he could have at least said, you know what, I am open, I am here, I am listening, I am willing to compromise. I feel that the Democratic um, National Committee is making a huge error by trying to pull Republicans to vote for Biden, as opposed to trying to pull progressives to vote for Biden. Their focus, you even see the, the convention, their focus is on how can we get the Republicans to turn over? You have so many progressives that would rally. They would, they would make calls. They would knock on doors for a candidate that they truly believe in. And if that were me on the stage, if I was standing in front of America and, and, and being asked about the Green New Deal, being asked about Medicare for all, I would say, I'm not taking anything off the table. I am here. I am willing to listen to what the American people want. Instead of saying, I am the Democratic Party. No, 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 no. I would say we are the Democratic Party. We are here to work together to do what's best for our country. Let's at least give, give it a chance. Let's put it on the table. Let's work it out. Let's see how we can make it better. But instead, it was, oh, no, you know, almost like, walking on eggshells not to upset the Republicans, but had no problem upsetting progressives. And one area where Biden has shown to not really put effort uh, into attracting voters is attracting youth voters. This is a person who said uh, of, I believe, millennials, but certainly of young generations, that he has no sympathy for them. I know you, on the other hand, have a lot of background in supporting youth in your community. Can you talk about that? Well, um, let's talk about my first video not being a campaign video. My first video was a rap video. Uh, <laughs> yes, I I am all about the youth. I mean, maybe I'm a youth at heart. I'm 36 years old, but I was a youth director uh, for six years here in North Miami 
which my students have faced some of the hardest um, issues that I think our community is facing at large. I've had one of my students served time. He was direct filed right into the system as an adult, and he served time for for obviously an incident that he wishes he never got into. But I had another student that was brought here at the age of six, never got his papers. I had to get him a lawyer, get him his TPS, get him a job. His family had kicked him out. I had to put him in a, a, a shelter for teens. Um, one of my students, she, she was raped. I mean, the things that I have seen firsthand these are the things that move me to fight for the future of our community. We can't keep letting these things happen, not to our children, not to our adults. It's time for us to stand up and fight against the injustices in our community. Mm -hmm. And of course, a one injustice that will impact young people the most is climate crisis. Uh, and with uh, both parties resisting Green New Deal, I, I know that Florida uh, is particularly at risk. I mean, this this year, this hurricane season, we saw an unprecedented amount of tropical storms. Uh, how have you seen that impacting your state and what would you like to do to address that issue? Well, there's one thing that I would love to do that uh, Joe Biden told us was off the table. Uh, I would like to pass a Green New Deal. I would like us to sit down and figure that out uh, because right now, if you walk into some of the, the wealthiest parts of Miami Beach, you will see that they are suffering from king tides. You walk out on a beautiful day and you are in the middle of a flood. It's not even raining. You are in the middle of a flood. Uh, you. Just, just looking at the way we consume and the garbage that is just tossed out into the streets. I mean, we are killing mother nature day in and day out. And we act as if she doesn't care. But at the end of the day, we need this earth. This earth does not need us. It is on us to, to take the steps that we need to start taking care of mother nature. I don't know if you saw this, but in Times Square, they put a, a clock up. There is a countdown, a countdown to when all of this damage is irreversible. And it went up, I think, two days ago in Times Square. The countdown is at seven years. Imagine another, let's say we have another four years of a president that thinks that climate change is a hoax. That, that brings us down to only three years to try to solve this problem, this climate crisis. We need drastic change and it needs it needs a leader that's bold to really push this agenda forward. Mm -hmm. And I also want to talk about uh, immigration because we saw horrific, horrific uh, dehumanization of immigrants. I mean, we've been seeing it, but most recently in the form of forced surgeries to prevent uh, immigrant women from giving birth. Uh, I know that this is this is a topic that you bring up in your platform. What yes. do you think needs to be done to protect immigrant rights in this country? We need to abolish ICE. We mm -hmm. need to abolish ICE immediately. We need a completely new organization that is going to handle our immigrants with love, support, and care. We are ripping 
wombs out of women that is irreversible and it's it, and personally it is inhumane i feel that our country right now is on the brink of uh, and actually i don't i don't even want to say it but but it's the truth i want you to think if, if this were hitler if we were in the middle of, of nazi germany and and we allowed this to happen that is what I feel is happening right now. We are watching a, 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 another form of the Holocaust happening right in front of our eyes. And we are not doing anything to stop it. We are just letting it happen. No one's standing up for these women. No one's standing up for these immigrants. My grandparents, my father, they're all from Haiti. They came here from Haiti. I have cousins that are so terrified for January, because in January, TPS has to be renewed. There are 46,000 lives at risk of being deported if we do not renew TPS. And we are we are in the fight of our lives in November. So, um, you know, honestly, with immigration, it's, it's complicated. I don't understand why it takes so long for someone to become a citizen. I don't understand why it takes so long for us to figure out a clear pathway to citizenship. I think it should be on the top of our agenda, especially now with the new Supreme Court justice. Our DACA recipients are at high risk of, of losing their rights. And it, it's, it's a shame. It's, it's seriously a shame, especially now during COVID. So many of our immigrants, they don't have health insurance. They, don't, they can't get unemployment. They've lost their jobs. They're being paid under the table. We need to start thinking about our immigrants and have rights established for them that we can't break, that we can't just go to the Supreme Court justice the next year or the, the next presidency and say, okay, let's just strip that. Let, let's appeal it. Um, anyway, I'm very passionate about immigration, mainly because my grandmother fled Haiti from a, a, a violent relationship. She mm -hmm. came here pregnant. And what she has been able to do, she brought her whole family here. I am a product of an immigrant woman that came here and fought for, for a better future for her children. And because of that, I owe that to my grandparents to fight for immigration rights. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand of your background, your, your parents have set up businesses. You're, of course, running for office now. So it's very fortunate that your family was uh, able to actually live the American dream here. But we're seeing so much of that go away uh, under the economy that uh, I'd say both parties have brought us. What is your take on the the way forward for restoring prosperity for workers in America? I think we need to raise the minimum wage to $15. At the very least, it needs to be $15. I think we need to consider universal basic income. I think that uh, it, I know that there's a lot of resistance with it. And I know Andrew Yang just sort of built the buzz back up and, and got the support. But I think it's time for us to start thinking about that, especially in a time like this, a time where you are not even in control of whether you can go back to work or not because of this virus. And you need the income. 
because our Congress has yet to pass another stimulus package. We have been suffering for months, waiting for financial economic relief. And right now they're, I mean, I've got C-SPAN on the, the other room. They're going to be voting on another relief package. But look at how many months it's been. Had we have had UBI um, established, then we would have been able to sustain our communities. Our families would have the money that they need to pay for their rent, to pay for their car note, to keep food on their table. And one thing, one thing that's really stood out about your campaign to me is not only do you speak for uh, a lot of progressive values such as Green New Deal, universal basic income, but there's been a few issues that you speak out on that even progressives I think have been hesitant to. Uh, you know, foreign policy has been one. Also, you are one of the few politicians to voice support for Julian Assange. Can you talk about why it's important to speak on some of these less discussed issues and why you think some people might be choosing not to speak on them? I think it's very touchy. I mean, even my team has told me over and over again, Christine, like, tone it down. Don't, don't, you know, try not to get on interviews and talk too much about it. And I, and I said, listen, we have to protect people that expose corruption and evil doing in our in our government that is that is what this whistleblower protection is all about we can't just turn our backs on people that are trying to show us the truth and i see that every day running for congress i am a regular normal everyday person and running against politicians i see the corruption i see what's going on there's so much behind the scenes that regular people don't know. And the only reason why I am being exposed to this is because I inserted myself into their world. Hmm. So I speak out, um, you know, for Julian Assange to free him because for me, I just feel like we, we can't, it's almost like in the hood and this is just, you know, street, uh, the street talk, but they say, you know, uh, snitches get stitches. And that's a mentality we need to get away from. It's not about snitching. It's about exposing truths that can actually save lives, not, not hurt lives, but that can save lives. So that is why I speak out. Um, I think it's unfair. It's unjust. And I, I, I really hope that he gets justice. Mm-hmm. Well, I really respect that. Uh, as, a, as a journalist myself, it's of course a big issue for me. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk about some of the most important uh, problems that are impacting Americans. I've covered the topics that I've been interested in covering, but is there anything else you hope our listeners know about your campaign and what you stand for? Our founding fathers made it so that everyday people could fight for everyday people. I understand that I'm a first time candidate, I understand that I'm just literally straight out of the community trying to to fight for a better future for my children. I understand that my opponent has been in office for in Congress for 10 years, but just Florida legislation 22 years. And so everyone feels more comfortable just sticking with the same old, same old. 
But what I encourage everyone to do, give someone new a chance. Right now, we are we are on the brink of devastation in this community in this country. We need fighters. We need people that have energy that are ready to go out there and really be a voice for the people, not be a voice for big corporations or be a voice for a specific party, a voice for the people, for you, for that mother who is who is struggling, homeschooling their child, not even knowing where they're going to get their next paycheck because they had to give up their job to homeschool their child during this pandemic, a voice for those business owners that didn't get the relief that they needed for this, this pandemic and they've had to close their business down, a voice for that immigrant child that it's here for a better life, but has nobody to fight for them to stay here. A voice for that young woman, that young woman who, who is not understanding what's going on with her body, but knowing that it should only be her choice to decide what happens next. A voice for people that just that just don't have anyone to go to bat for them. Why? Because maybe they don't have money that can interest a certain politician or, or any leverage. But I tell you right now that I am indebted to the people. I am here to fight for you. Give me a chance. Give someone new a chance. If you don't live in Florida, look into the people that are running. This can literally change the way our government runs. This election coming up in November, if you give someone a chance. And that's all I want to say. Also, visit www.christineforcongress.org to learn more about me and about the mission. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. And where can people follow you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Christine, F-O-R-2-4. That's Christine424. Um, you can also find me um, on both Instagram and Facebook at Christine for Congress. And that's spelled out f-o-r christine for congress well christine olivo thank you so much for coming on news dive sharing your campaign and your approach to politics that i certainly hope to see more of that was an interview with christine olivo and this has been news dive again if you liked what you heard please Follow us and share us. We are at News Dive Radio on Twitter and Instagram, and you can listen to all our episodes through anchor.fm slash newsdive or by subscribing to News Dive on anywhere where you listen to podcasts. I am Sam Carliner. We'll see you later.